0: This is The Guardian.
1: Today, making sense of why thousands of people are suddenly fleeing a place called Nagorno-Karabakh.
2: Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier.
3: So this morning, I headed out from my hotel and I headed toward the border of Armenia with Nagorno-Karabakh.
1: Andrew Roth is The Guardian's Moscow correspondent, but he spent the past week on the border between Armenia and
3: Azerbaijan. And as you start to get close to the border, just a couple of kilometers away, you start to see the signs of the fact that something extraordinary is going on.
1: What he's been witnessing there is a mass exodus, Tens of thousands of people taking the opportunity to flee for their lives.
3: This is what it sounds like uh, along the border. Right now I'm just walking down and you can see just a line of cars stretching all the way down the road that are all coming, bringing people, refugees from Karabakh into Armenia, you know, every minute by me, there are 20 cars maybe passing, and people have everything that they own basically latched onto these cars. You know, some people have big bags with all their possessions. You can see tractors coming down the road, pulling people's possessions, or people riding on tops of trucks and lorries that are all bringing people who say that they can't really stay in Karabakh anymore with Azerbaijan coming in. You know, for a lot of people who've been through a lot of wars in this part of Karabakh, Some people have evacuated already three times. They told me that this is the last time that they're done and they think they're never going to see their homes again.
1: So far, more than 40,000 people have left Nagorno-Karabakh, and more are coming. The evacuation of Armenians from the territory is expected to take months. For them, the events of the past week are the death knell for what they considered their homeland. For Azerbaijan, it's the victory they've been waiting for for decades. For most of us, it's a conflict a long way away in a place we might never have heard of. But what's happening right now in Nagorno-Karabakh matters, both for the people involved and for what it points to, that in a part of the world where Russia has long been in charge, the balance of power is changing. From The Guardian, I'm Michael Safi. Today in Focus, Why a Frozen Conflict in the Caucasus Has Reignited Andrew, this story is about a place that might be pretty unfamiliar to most of us, so can you begin by telling me
3: about Nagorno-Karabakh? Where is it and what does it look like? Nagorno-Karabakh is a small territory. It's extremely mountainous. As you look into it from Armenia, there's this beautiful mountain range. The road that leads into there is the lashin Corridor, which kind of snakes down the mountain and goes across a bridge. And when you cross that bridge, you're technically now in Azerbaijan, according to internationally recognized borders. But Inside of it, it's a territory that doesn't recognize itself to be part of Azerbaijan. Many Armenians consider this territory to be their ancestral homeland. You know, this is a history that goes back centuries, they say. And for the Armenians who live there, they don't consider themselves to be part of Azerbaijan. They consider themselves to be a separate country, a separate state. It's a really beautiful place. There's a big capital called Stepanakert, and there's a large network of villages and towns and a lot of people live in the countryside. And about 120,000 people lived there before the war.
1: And Andrew, why has Nagorno-Karabakh been in the news recently? What's been happening there over the past year?
3: Ten months ago, Azerbaijan began a blockade of Nagorno-Karabakh. So they blocked all the roads in and out of Armenia. And what they've been trying to do is basically starve or prevent people from inside from getting any kinds of goods that would make life livable in this territory.
0: Every day is a new test of what food is left, for how long it will last, what you can tell your child when you ask why the stores are closed, why there are long queues, why there is no this or that.
3: If you wanted to get food in, if you wanted to get petrol in, you would have to mainly take it from Armenia, along this long road called the Lashan Corridor. But the Azerbaijani government have troops stationed on the road who basically turned anybody trying to bring food, petrol, humanitarian aid away. And so for 10 months, this territory has been living in virtual isolation under siege. And the situation inside has been growing more and more dire. People have been warning about a humanitarian catastrophe that's taking place there, that it was impossible to treat people in hospitals because they couldn't get medicine there, they couldn't get basic goods that they needed there. And it became clear that Azerbaijan was kind of moving into a final Stage in this conflict in which it really wanted to force the Armenians in the area out of the country.
1: And so then that final stage arrived last week with a 24
3: hour Azerbaijani offensive. What happened? So after this 10 month siege, the Azerbaijani government launched a massive offensive that it appeared to be planning for for quite a while.
0: This morning in Stepanakert, the capital of Nagorno-Karabakh, the government of Azerbaijan said it had mounted a counter-terrorist operation. But the ethnic Armenians who live here saw it as an unprovoked and opportunistic attack.
3: It starts firing shells into cities and villages in the area. It starts moving forward on local Armenian positions in the area. And it becomes very clear very quickly that the local government doesn't really have the forces left to really withstand this Azerbaijani attack. The troops have to lay down their arms, and the Azerbaijani government demands talks. And the talks that it wants are not really negotiations. What the Azerbaijani government really wants is to reintegrate the lands of Karabakh, what the locals call Artsakh, back into Azerbaijan. So this is the final stage of what's been a conflict for these last 30 years, Azerbaijan finally sees an endgame and says, this is our moment, and this is going to be formally and de facto Azerbaijan once again.
1: Since then, how many of the Armenians living in
3: this territory have decided to flee? So the Armenians in the territory have looked at the situation and they remember the past wars before when there's been a lot of cases of atrocities, particularly in 2020, when we saw troops in cities committing some pretty horrific acts against the local population that fell under their control. And in this case, they decided that rather than stay and wait for Azerbaijan to move into big cities like Stepanakert, they would leave the country instead. As of Tuesday evening, we've seen about 19,000 people leave Karabakh and go across the border into Armenia. And it's fairly extraordinary because the border only opened on Sunday in a really unexpected turn of events because the local government after 10 months of siege, said that actually they would be able to now begin evacuations from the territory. And so within basically two days, the fact that 19,000 people have made their way to the border shows you the amount of fear that there is, and also that for a majority of the population there, living with Azerbaijan as the controlling power is just something that most people are not ready to live with.
1: Mm, And those figures grew a lot throughout Wednesday. We're now told more than 42,000 people have fled. That's more than a third of the population of Nagorno-Karabakh. Andrew, you've been on the border as many of these Armenians have been crossing over. What are they telling you about what they've left behind?
3: For them, it's a tragedy. The stories that you hear on the border are very painful to listen to. These are people who've been through an incredible ordeal. For many of them, having lived in Karabakh for at least 30 years and often longer, they had built homes, they've had children and grandchildren, uh, people have buried their parents, their grandparents on these territories. And when they talk about the decision to leave, very often it's one where they say that on the one hand they had the security of going into Armenia, but on the other hand they have their houses, their possessions, and often, most importantly, the graves of their family members.
4: Yes, she says that she thought about staying, but then uh, two days they were on the shelling. And they flee flee at night without taking anything from home. uh, And they didn't take anything with them.
3: So at one point this week, I was sitting in, in the lobby of a hotel that was just filled with refugees who'd just come across the border. And it was two elderly women... Anna and her mother, Lucia, they were about 70 and 90. And they were sitting in wheelchairs uh, in the lobby of this hotel uh, as people were, you know, running around them. There's kids, there's families carrying all their possessions in, there's people crying in the lobby. And I spoke with them about, you know, this experience of leaving Nagorno-Karabakh. And it wasn't the first time for them. They'd been through three wars when they had had to evacuate into Armenia from the territory. And as I spoke with Anna, she talked about the things she'd left behind, about her home, about her garden. But the thing that really seemed to affect her most was when she said that she would left behind the, the grave of her son, who had died in the army in Karabakh. And you could see the kind of emotion that that elicited for her and just how painful that experience was for her.
1: Andrew, I think to try to understand what's happened over the past few weeks, we have to go back in time. Tell me about when this conflict first took root and why this region is so hotly contested.
3: This is a conflict that has its roots in the beginning of the Soviet Union or even earlier. So when the Russian Empire fell apart, and we first saw states like Azerbaijan and Armenia come into existence for a short period of time, already there was some fighting over Nagorno-Karabakh between the two sides because both of them claimed it to be their own. But when the Soviet Union began to incorporate all of the former territories of the Russian Empire, it basically took in you know Azerbaijan and Armenia and, and all the other former republics. And the conflict halted there because they were all part of a kind of single bigger state.
1: Interesting. So the Soviet Union comes along and suddenly these national borders are all dissolved into a much bigger entity. The Russians effectively say there's no room in our Soviet socialist republic for this kind of conflict, so cut it out.
3: Right. The Soviet Union is basically one big country. So even if there are these administrative borders inside, it's still part of a bigger country that can basically control that.
2: President Gorbachev has resigned. The last president of the Soviet Union went on television to tell his people... He had no regrets about the policies he had pursued, and he would support the new Commonwealth.
1: So
3: what happens when the Soviet Union dissolves? When the Soviet Union dissolves, at the very beginning, we start to see small-scale fighting, and we see these start to grow and grow. We see pogroms take place against Armenian communities. We also see violence against Azerbaijani communities. And this grows into what's called the First Nagorno-Karabakh War. And it lasts from 1988 until... 1994
2: there was new violence overnight in one of the most troubled spots in what used to be the Soviet Union and
3: this is is a major conflict between two sides that was extremely bloody extremely hard-fought there were clear atrocities that were committed by both sides in the war both sides say they want the killing stopped neither side is listening much to peace plans from a growing list of would-be mediators but it ends in 1994 with an effective Armenian victory And to a very large degree, the Azerbaijani population that was in Nagorno-Karabakh is forced out. And we see the emergence of this state, the Nagorno-Karabakh Republic, which is self-governing and self-declared, but is not internationally recognised. So it's a breakaway republic that exists within larger Azerbaijan. So for three decades,
1: this is considered one of the world's frozen conflicts. And then it's in 2020, when most of us are consumed by the COVID pandemic – that we see the next big development in this story.
3: Tell me about it. So for years there are these kind of border conflicts that are taking place in Nagorno-Karabakh and we see a little bit of land change hands, we see shelling incidents where people are killed, we see, you know, flare-ups and fighting, but we don't see major changes in the status quo. But in 2020, you know, decades after the conflict begins, Azerbaijan decides that it's going to launch a major offensive, in Nagorno-Karabakh, and it's going to seek to take the land back. The current fighting is the worst scene since the war between the Azeris and the Armenians back in the 1990s. Within just 44 days, Azerbaijan is incredibly successful. Their army is very well trained. They've modernized their army and it's become far stronger. They're much more wealthy than they were in the 1990s, thanks to exports of gas and oil. And It ends in a crushing defeat for the Armenian government. The Armenian side is forced to sign a ceasefire deal. The ceasefire deal says that we'll halt the conflict, that Armenia needs to give back some lands where Armenians are living to the Azerbaijani government, and that Russian peacekeepers are going to be introduced into the region in order to prevent this from happening again.
1: Andrew, one of the themes that I'm picking up from this history that you're taking us through is that when Russia is strong, when it's exerting its influence, it's able to bury the tension that runs through Nagorno-Karabakh. We saw that in 1918. We saw it again in the early 90s. Has that been a factor again in the past few years as the conflict has again resurfaced?
3: I think absolutely that's part of the Azerbaijani calculations. When Azerbaijan launched its war in 2020. During COVID, the world was starting to change quite a bit. And it was clear that Russia was not quite in the same position that it was before to tamp down the conflict. Azerbaijan had become far stronger. It had become far more independent. It had new allies like Turkey. And it felt that it was in a position at that point where despite the fact that Russia is historically an ally of Armenia's and that they're in a security block together, it could launch a major war against armenia and that russia wouldn't be able to stop it the most that the russians could do was to come in and try to broker a ceasefire at extremely poor terms for the armenian side and so when we get to 2023 russia is even more distracted for the last 18 months russia has been thinking only about its war in ukraine
4: Russia is currently the most sanctioned country in the world. Reliable economic data is hard to come by, but it's clear heavy war spending is only adding to pressure on an already fragile economy.
3: It's a war that has taken up an incredible amount of Russian resources, and it's clear that the Azerbaijani calculus was, well, if they couldn't stop us before, they definitely can't stop us this time.
1: Over the past few weeks, as this war has reached its final stages, has Russia tried to intervene? Has it tried to play that role that it's been able to play for decades of of the big brother of the regional policeman?
3: When Russia finally gets involved and helps broker this new ceasefire and talks between Azerbaijan and Armenia, it doesn't seem like the Armenians really received much from the Russian intervention. The rule in this case seemed to be to end the fighting by giving Azerbaijan everything that it wants. And so even though Russia had peacekeepers in the region, a lot of Armenians are very angry at Russia because it seems that the peacekeepers did very little to keep peace at all. You know, while I've been here on the ground and and talking with people, they've complained a lot about the fact that even though their homes were being shelled, Russian peacekeepers often said that they couldn't really get involved or do much to help them.
4: Mm. So on 19th of September, when they flee to the shelter, then the Russian peacekeepers came Mm -hmm. and they took them to a neighboring village Mm -hmm. where they have a base and there was a guy, uh, he convinced them, saying uh, go, don't look back, you have to go, you have to leave. Uh,
3: The most that they could do is just to shelter them at their own bases, basically trusting that the Azerbaijani government wouldn't shell a kind of peacekeeping base used by the Russians.
4: So this guy also said, uh, we cannot protect you if you go back to the village. So better you go to Armenia.
3: In some cases, uh, even Russian peacekeepers have been killed by shelling during this conflict. So it's clear that even though, you know, the Azerbaijan side doesn't want to be an open conflict with Russia, they also were not really concerned about the fact that there were peacekeepers there.
1: This is an area that Russia considers part of its sphere of influence, its traditional backyard. But if it's not the big power in this part of the world anymore,
3: who is? There are other big regional powers that also play a role, in particular Turkey. Turkey's president, Erdogan, has a very close relationship with Ilham Aliyev, he's the head of Azerbaijan. They're very close allies. And Turkey has helped arm Azerbaijan for this war that it's going into against Armenia. Turkey would very much like to see Azerbaijan go forward, continue to take more land. And Turkey is a big player. The other thing we've seen is that other traditional allies of Armenia, the EU and also Washington, while they kind of remain on the same side, we've seen that they've also had trouble really also projecting their power into the region. So just like the fact that Russian peacekeepers haven't really had an effect, we don't see so much that statements of concern or even threats from the US or the EU really have any kind of effect on Azerbaijan. You know, the key here is maybe not so much the role of Russia as the fact that the power dynamic between Armenia and Azerbaijan has just changed. Azerbaijan has become far stronger, it's become far wealthier, and it's become much more convinced of the fact that it can use its military in Nagorno-Karabakh to achieve its goals.
1: Coming up, there are still thousands of Armenians left behind in Nagorno-Karabakh. Are they safe? And do they have any future there?
0: Hello, I'm Grace Dent. I'm back. And I've been busy. Come for Eating, our award-winning podcast, is out now. With an exciting line of including Shirley Ballas, Bridget Christie, Jamie Demetrio, and many more. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.
2: Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Borough order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at borough.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at borough.com slash ACAST.
0: Today in Focus is supported by BetterHelp. Here's a question. If you had an extra hour in your day, what would you do with it? Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash today in focus today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, slash today in focus.
1: Andrew, thousands of Armenians have left Nagorno-Karabakh, but thousands remain behind and it's not really clear what's going to happen to them. On Tuesday, we saw an explosion at a fuel depot that killed dozens of people. On Wednesday, a former minister in the Nagorno-Karabakh government was arrested. Azerbaijan says, don't worry, everyone's going to be fine. But what's the future look like for Armenians still in Nagorno-Karabakh?
3: The truth is that we don't know yet. Right now, we're in a kind of middle period where Azerbaijan has defeated the local army, but they haven't actually moved in to take control of the major cities, Stepanakert, or these new territories that they've taken. The local population of Armenians is very scared about the idea of Azerbaijan starting to administer their communities, their cities, and most of all, I think they're scared of reprisals. They're scared of attacks. And they're scared that Azerbaijani troops might take revenge. There's incredible fear that the Azerbaijani government is going to engage in a campaign of ethnic cleansing against the local Armenian population. And people very often are voting with their feet to get out. The people who are staying behind are often the elderly or the people who say that I really can't live anywhere else. This is my home and I'm going to stay here no matter what. And for them, for the people who remain behind, the future is incredibly hazy. It's hard to imagine how Azerbaijan comes in and doesn't aggressively change life for these people, and how Azeris and Armenians, after so many years of conflict, could possibly kind of live together in these communities anymore.
1: This conflict over Nagorno-Karabakh has raged in one form or another for over a century. Now... It looks like it's over. It looks like Azerbaijan has won. What is the mood in Armenia?
3: For the people who are leaving, many of them see it as the kind of last time they're going to evacuate from Karabakh. You know, many of them have been through this twice or three times already. But of pretty much everybody I've spoken to, they've all said that they're never going back. They don't think that Armenia now is strong enough to take back the lands from Azerbaijan. And as long as Azerbaijan's in control, that they'll never go back. You know, in Armenia, this is a conflict that many people believe should have been fought more aggressively, more fiercely, and it's something of a national embarrassment that people from this region weren't protected. Last week, we went to the Yerablur military cemetery. It's where most of the people who have fought in this war over the last three decades have been buried. And as the conflict has gone on, the cemetery has grown larger and larger, and you can see the different stages of the war by the colors of the gravestones. And so, you know, the biggest section now comes in 2020, and it's this kind of sea of white gravestones and there's Armenian flags there. And one man that we talked to who was uh, sitting in front of the grave of his son basically said that the people who sent him there uh, to fight in this war, how can they now turn around and basically admit that Nagorno-Karabakh is part of Azerbaijan? What was the point of sending him there? So for the people who gave the most in this conflict, it's very hard to stomach the idea that it was all in vain. I think many people feel like they owed something to the Armenians who lived there and that they failed to come through on that promise.
1: Andrew, thank you very much. Thank you. That was Andrew Roth, The Guardian's Moscow correspondent. He's in Armenia, and his coverage from there is at TheGuardian.com. And that is it for today. This episode was produced by Ned Carter Miles and Tom Glasser. Sound design was by Rudy Zagadlo. The executive producer was Homa Khalili. And we're back tomorrow.
0: This is The Guardian.
2: Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news! Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free, or go to amazon.com/newsadfree. That's amazon.com/newsadfree to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.
4: Hi, this is Bachelor Clues from Game of Roses, of course.